we've been going through Second Peter, kind of. I've said we were going to do it last week, but we never actually got there. And we ended up reading everything in the book of Jude. We read every word out of Jude, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Maybe not the introduction, because I read that the week before. So we're going to be jumping back and forth. So be ready uh, to at least take notes of the Scripture references so that you may want to turn there at another time if you don't want to turn there now while we're going through this. So this is the to be continued twice. So we will be talking a little bit about 2 Peter, but we're also, I'm going to, I want to make sure that I am clear on a few points. So we're going to revisit a couple things. And you know, when I listen to the podcast, I realize that I didn't follow through with something and it makes me want to go back. So it's a good thing that we have recordings and I, I do listen to it. I don't really like to listen to it. I like listening to the ones that were from a long time ago. When you do a fill-in for the podcast, I love listening to those. But the ones I just did, I'm, I don't need to listen to that, but I do. And then I catch some things. So, and then I see so many things. It, it is really hard to get uh, everything I want to preach done. And then you, you would think we'd be able to get it all in with uh, Wednesday nights. Uh, be thinking about Wednesday. If you do not come on Wednesday night to at least listen to the CD or the podcast, uh, we've, been, we've been talking about the book of James. And in talking about James, we are getting more into the action items, being doers of the word, not just hearers of it, trying to balance some things out. And we ended up talking about King David, way before he was king, when he was just a boy taking care of the sheep out in the field, and he wasn't even invited when Samuel came. And, and we know that Samuel went there to anoint David. That's the reason he went there. And David wasn't even invited to the sacrifice. God told Samuel, because Samuel was scared to go because he thought Saul would kill him. And, and God said, well, just tell him that you are going there for a sacrifice and take a heifer with you. Isn't that interesting? That God would have that communication, that relationship with Samuel that way? To, he gave him a reason or somehow to do on a worldly level. I mean, just the way we think. So God wants to communicate. Don't worry about praying. Because I think it's kind of silly for Samuel to be scared and to ask God that way, and God responded in a very human way. When God could have said, don't worry about it. You should have faith. Go, do it. But he said, well, you can do this. So he went, and he shows up, and David hasn't even been invited to this very important event. And the event was all about David being anointed. So we, we talked about that on Wednesday, and uh, as we go through the book of James, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that David did in his lifetime because he was a doer of the Word as well. Something I want you to see, 
and this is, and I'm going to get into the follow-up of what I did last week, but turn to Jude. Might as well turn there because Jude and Revelation are right there together. So turn to Jude, and I'm just going to read three verses out of Jude. I read all of, almost all of them last week. I think I started in verse 3 last week. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, talking about people who have crept in unawares, people who are up, they're out for no good for the church. They want to cripple the church. They masquerade as Christians, good people, and they sneak in and they bring in some bad things. They crept in unawares. And it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead. Remember that, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, going to hell is going to be like being inside of the belly of a whale. Blackness, severe heat, the acids eating away the flesh of Jonah. Just imagine Jonah being inside the belly as well. Jonah did not want to take a message to a people that he felt deserved hell. He didn't like them at all. They were the enemies of his people. And Jonah was given a taste of what hell would be like. We all need to realize that how alone and how dark and how long a person will be in that state and go to people who don't deserve and give them the love of God. Show them the way. Because our worst enemy, we should not want them to go through this blackness and darkness forever. We are to have a special kind of love inside of us that we would go to our enemies and try to convert them. Try to show them the light. Remember, uh, twice dead. Now, turn over a page or two to Revelation chapter 2. I talked about this, and this is where I don't think I, f I followed through all the way. And I'm going to read now. I'm going to read a little more. Chapters two and chapter three talk about the seven churches, starting with Ephesus. That was the first church, and as you follow it through, you have Smyrna is the next one, and then you have Pergamus. After that, Thyatira. After that, over in, ch in chapter 3, Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. That's the seven. Now, you don't know a whole lot about some of these, 
you know a lot about Ephesus. There's a book called Ephesians in your Bible. So that's really familiar to you. But what about the other ones? There's a mention of a letter that was written to Laodicea, but we don't have it. It's not in our Bibles. And we might get confused on, and, and there's not a whole lot said about it, until you get here, and Jesus is going into detail. He is speaking. Each one has an angel. Each church has an angel watching over them, and he says, unto the angel of the church of. And he's wanting a message to be given to these, these places. And each one of these churches were in existence at the same time. You know, one might have been formed and then the next one formed, but generally the same time period. So this is very historical, but there's a way deeper meaning to each one of these churches. Ephesus being, think about your first love. It's supposed to be Jesus. The church of Ephesus represented that. When we first are born again, and we know who Jesus is, but, but there is some virtues that we can talk about assigned to these churches. And there's some weaknesses, possibly, in some of these churches. Are there virtues in every one? Are there weaknesses in every one? As you read through them, you're going to see these details. And... There's actually a couple that don't have any rebukes from the Lord. And then there's one that has no virtue at all. Now, I'm going to say that each one of these churches, in the order that they're in, Revelation 2 and 3, is how the church, the body of Christ, the church age that we're in right now, how it has progressed through history. Now, when it was first written, you know where it was written? You know where all this was written? You know who wrote it? You know John wrote it. Where was he at when he wrote it? He was on an island. Yep, island of Patmos, which is right over from there. Just If you look at the map and you see Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, and it was right on the, uh, the far west coast of that area. And if you look at the way the churches were situated, you have Ephesus, and then you go up the coast to Smyrna, and then up to Pergamos, and then it kind of bends around down to Thyatira, down to Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. It goes up, in it, uh, up like that and back down. So they're all in, if you, could, you, know, if you were playing dot to dot, they're all in perfect order, going up and around. Just like that. Ephesus. The virtues that are talked about in Ephesus is good works, patience, sound doctrine, church discipline, steadfastness, and hatred of evil. But there was some backsliding going on. They had lost their first love. But anybody who overcame that would be given heavenly food. That's in verse 7. And it basically lines up with the very beginning of the church age, when the apostles were going out and setting up churches. Well, what happened after that? When you read through Smyrna, that part of uh, 
that church, Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, it, they were poor, but they were called rich by God. Why were they poor? They were severely persecuted because the Romans and the different leaders in the Roman Empire for ten different ones sent this one. This one would die. The, the Roman, uh, the Caesars, they usually died very young and horrible deaths, but they persecuted the church horribly. And it even says something about ten days in that which 10 represents the persecution, the whole time of persecution. So in Smyrna, there was spiritual endurance, heavenly treasures. Why, why does it talk about heavenly treasure? Because they didn't have any earthly treasures. But they, because of what they were doing, they were maybe missing out on some earthly ple, uh, pleasures and treasures, but they were going to have heavenly treasures because of what they went through. They gave up this life for a better life in the, in the next life. Okay, so and what, what kind of reproof was given to Smyrna? None. There's no negative. Now, that would be, that age is that age after all the churches were set up, that beginning in that age of severe persecution. But what happened during persecution was that it wasn't able to stay where it originated. So you, you build a, a nice little community church here, and everything's wonderful. Everybody wants to stay. They're comfortable here. But when persecution comes, and you are driven out, you might go over there, you might go over there, I might go over here, and we spread the gospel into different areas. So when, when, when the Apostle Paul, which he was Saul of Tarsus, he was severely persecuting the church, and it caused all the people to leave their comfort zone and to go out and to start spreading the gospel in all parts of the world. So that's what was happening. Now, Pergamos. When, when I read out of that section, I think it was last Sunday, I read about this uh, thing of, of Balaam, this doctrine of Balaam. So what is this doctrine of Balaam? And I touched on it, where he taught the king, Balak, to introduce his women to the sons of the nation of Israel. So that same doctrine, that same way of tricking the nation of Israel that is what, when the devil finally realized that the severe persecution was actually counterproductive, in the effort to try to wipe it out, it spread all over the place. So, remember in the story of Balaam, back in Numbers, he was being hired to put a curse to wipe out the nation of Israel. He couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. But he realized how holy God was. He realized how pitiful the nation of Israel was and that when they did things wrong against God, God would judge them. So Pergamos, it, that age, it's, it's, when, it's when in history, 
in about 300 and something A.D., 315 maybe, A.D., there was a man named Constantine who was the new ruler. And he said, I think the devil used him. He claimed to be a Christian, but just partly Christian and partly worldly. So what he did, Constantine stopped all persecution. Well, if you were being persecuted, you were like, thank goodness, thank the Lord, I'm not being persecuted anymore. Then he introduced pagan things into Christian things. So Pergamos is where Christianity and the world intermingled. They married each other. Persecution was gone. But yet within the church, it started to break down internally. That's Pergamos. They were reproved for, or they, the virtues were steadfastness amidst, you know, even, even though they, was, they were in an evil environment. And then they were rebuked for tolerance of corrupt doctrines and heresies. Evil men crept in unawares. Peter wrote about it in 2 Peter. Jude wrote about it in detail, about evil men crept in unawares. Now, for those who overcome hidden spiritual blessings, divine food, a new name. It's when the churches started to be... If you look at it in, in today the effects of it today, even though these, were, these are ages that the church, the body of Christ, has gone through, and I've only got through the third one, we still see it today in our modern time, each one of these. A brand new church springs up. We could call that a church like Ephesus. A church that's been around a while, but falls away, that could be Smyrna, you know, with severe persecution. Or a big, huge denomination that's all over the world can allow worldly things to creep in, and you have Pergamos. So the church becomes not effective anymore. We're seeing that happen all over again in today's time. So it would be government doing what churches are supposed to do. Government pro promising to help everybody when it's the church's job to help people. So... It, was it a few weeks ago I talked about uh, separation of church and state and what does it mean? Most people say that the government should have absolutely nothing to do with religion. And the whole point of separate people, will, they have no clue where it comes from. Most people don't understand that the term separation of church and state was, was looked for by people who, who wanted freedom from religion. And they picked out a phrase out of a letter that was sent to the Danbury Baptist that Thomas Jefferson wrote. And they were so scared of the federal government, this church, this denomination was scared of the federal government. And, and Jefferson said, don't, you don't need to worry about it because we've got this wall of separation that keeps the government from doing anything to you. So people took it out of context and said, see there, we're not supposed to mix the two. But yet Thomas Jefferson made church in Congress. At the Capitol, there was a big 
big room that they had church service in every single week. But yet people will say he didn't want religion mixed in with government. Really? Well, then why did he set up church in the capital? And he attended when he was there and encouraged everybody who was in government to be there. Why is it that state constitutions throughout America have in their constitutions, they even had clauses where, all right, you have to be this age to be a senator or you have to be this age to be in the House. And they, certain states actually had, you, you needed to be a born-again believer. Because they said, it's hard to trust even a born-again believer. But you cannot trust someone who's not at all. So they wrote it into their laws that if you vote somebody in to represent you, you better make sure they have a fear of God. You better make sure that they understand that when you do good, you might have reward in heaven, and when you do bad, you're going to burn in hell. Because if they don't have that kind of belief and that kind of fear of God, you can't trust them to represent you in our government. Does that sound like separation of church and state? It's the total opposite. We know that we need godly people representing us. And if we don't have them there, you're going to have one messed up society. And we're seeing it. Good is going to be called bad, and bad is going to be good. There's going to be... Look at even so-called conservatives are bending and bowing down to abomination. They're bowing down to it. And if they don't bow down to it, they're terrible people. They're unloving. You will be called all kinds of bad names if you stand on the Word of God. So I'm challenging you to stand on the Word. There's people who, young people who are confused, very confused, and they are looking for somebody that they can, that they can have, maybe have their back. They might be thinking, yeah, I, I don't think this is right, but everybody around them seems to be okay with it, and they just want to follow along because they don't want to be pushed aside and be the one out by themselves. We need to be people who are not afraid to stand on good Bible teaching so that those people have somebody to look to. That's Pergamos. Which lead, it, that leads into Thyatira, which basically is, in my opinion, it would be what the Roman Catholic Church really stands for, having a priest and a pope, and how they tell you that you can't go to God, you must come into the church and you must sit down and confess your sins to a priest, and that priest will go to God for you. That's uh, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. God hates that doctrine. It says it right here in Revelation. He hates it. It's basically... Nica is power over laetin, laity. I'm no different. You, people might call me a, a preacher, might call me clergy. I've even had people send me a letter and it says reverend on it. No, don't ever call me reverend. 
Never. I am a born-again child of God. I am no different than anybody else that's in the, in the family of Christ. I'm no different. We all have different gifts, and we all are to operate in those gifts. We can show respect for somebody in a certain position. God has ordered the things. Wives are supposed to submit themselves to their husbands. They're the weaker vessel. Why are they the weaker vessel? Does that mean they're weaker than men? Not necessarily. But they're made of gold, where the man's made of iron. What's more valuable? The gold is way more valuable. It's weaker. It won't stand up to certain things, but it's way more precious. So we go to the throne of grace. We go there. We don't need a priest in our way. Now, I can go into way more stuff on fire tower. Now, there's some good things that are talked about there. They are, they are lifted up for charity, spiritual service, faith and patience. The, the Catholic Church, like Mother Teresa, what she did, absolutely amazing. The orphanages that they built, the hospitals that they built, the colleges, all of the things that they did were wonderful. So they did a lot of good but they had a whole lot of corruptness within it. Telling people that their loved ones were in purgatory, burning, and if they gave money, they prayed to give them some relief. You know, they, they, did, they did a lot of bad things. Then you have Sardis. That would be during the time period of, of what we know of as the Middle Ages. Philadelphia. I think Sardis going into Philadelphia is that time of the Reformation when the Reformers like Martin Luther saw the corruptness of the Catholic Church and then started the Protestant religion, the Protestant denominations that we have today and what, what, that we are a part of. And Philadelphia, it has no reproof either. It's that church of brotherly love. It's a weak but loyal church. And here's the virtue of the Church of Philadelphia. Keeping of the Word. Getting back to what the Bible really says. Rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And that's where you have all these people, the Great Awakenings happening, and men of God, women of God going overseas and taking the Gospel all over the world as missionaries. And that brings us into Laodicea, which is the last church mentioned in the church age. What kind of virtues do you see when you read Laodicea? None. It's that church that has become lukewarm. We're neither cold nor hot. Jesus said he wants to spew us out of his mouth. We make him sick to his stomach, and he wants to spew us out, to vomit us out. That's the church today, Laodicea. That's the church that I think ends the dispensation of grace. I don't know how long the church age of Laodicea will last. I don't know if it ends tomorrow and we get raptured out of here. True believers get raptured out. Others will stay behind. I, I really believe that there's going to be... And the reason I say this, there was only one person that got translated out of here 
before the flood, and that was Enoch. Only one. So that represents a very small percentage of the population. Then I look at Noah and the ark. Now, Noah and the ark, I've used it, I've preached it as Jesus is, you know, the ark represents Jesus, and if you get inside of him, you're protected from the judgment. What it probably really truly means, if you interpret it correctly, is that if you're a true born-again child of God, then you're going to be an Enoch, and you're going to be taken out before the tribulation comes. That's why I'm a pre-trib rapture person. Pre-millennial, pre-trib. That's why I think that. Because I'm an Enoch. I, I'm no, you, you probably don't say, oh, he walks with God, he's awesome. You, know, you, you don't say that about me, but I want to be like Enoch. I want to walk with God. And when the time comes when he decides to take his out of here, that we're out of here. All right. Now, in, in Smyrna, the church that's the, the severe persecution, the very last verse says, And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Remember I told you to remember, twice dead. Second death. If you go to Genesis, it all starts in Genesis. If you go to Genesis and you look at the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, I'm still not going to read Second Peter today. I can see it. What does it say in... Uh, Genesis 5, talking about the descendants of Adam, which, which the descendants of Seth. Okay, listen, listen to this. And this is verse 3 of, of chapter 5 of Genesis. And Adam lived, a hundred. it talks about how long he lived, 130 years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived, so he lived, gave birth to Seth, or he didn't, but he did, but he he begat Seth, and then he lived, and then he died. Seth lived so many years, begat Enos, And Seth lived, and then you get to the end of verse uh, 8, and he died. And then Enos lived and begat Canaan, and then it says, and all the days Canaan lived, and then he died. And then after that was Mahaliel, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but he lived, and then begat Jared, and then he lived, and then he died. Every one of these. Now you get down to Enoch. Jared lived, and he begat Enoch, and then Jared lived, and then he died. And then Enoch lived, but then he walked with God. And he walked with God for so many years after he... So when he was 65... He begat Methuselah, 
And you get past uh, Enoch, Methuselah lived, and then he lived, and then he died. And then Lamech, Lamech, he lived, and he lived, and he died. Everybody's living twice. Now, if you back up one chapter, and you look at the descendants of Cain, and which if you're, if you're reading through the Bible and you get to the descendants of Cain, you're going to see an Enoch, because one of his wives gave birth to an Enoch, and then you go on down the line, you're going to see a Lamech. But it's not these. It's just different people. In a, in a bad line of people, the, the Canaanites, you don't see where they lived. You don't see where they lived after they begat. And it doesn't say anything about them dying. Now there's a verse that I meant to write down <clears throat> that is uh, something about the death of God's saints. He has joy in the death in his saints. I meant to write that down. <clears throat> it might be in my other notebook, but it's different. If you are in the line of Cain, you're going to have two deaths. You're going to die naturally, and then you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's the second death. If you are in the line of Seth, if you are a believer, a righteous believer, you're going to be born into this world, and then you're going to have a born-again experience, so you're going to live, and then he begat so-and-so and begat. Well, you're going to be born again. You're going to be a son of God. So you're going to live, then you're going to live, and then one day you're going to die, but you're only going to die once. Then you're going to live for eternity with him in heaven. You see that? You see how Scripture is so awesome? We can see so much in Scripture, but we have to read it. We read it. We have to meditate on it. We have to soak in it. We need to know the Scripture. Now, Enoch's the only one where it doesn't say anything about living the second time, but he said he walked with God, and it doesn't say anything about him dying. Enoch was translated out of here. Now you know that there are three different places where Enoch is talked about in the Bible. Three. Alright, you see him right here in Genesis? Now you can't get him confused with the other Enoch. Now if you just looked up Enoch and, and counted the places, you'll be counting one that I'm not even talking about. You've got to get the right person. So you got right here in Genesis, where it talked about how he walked with God. And then, he's in Hebrews 11. And then he's in Jude. And remember, last week I said, uh, what they said about him is that he was, he prophesied to the people. But yet you don't see the prophecy in the Bible. But it says in here at the end that he did. So in the process of walking with God in that... So leading up to the destruction of this earth with uh, Noah, what was going on? What was going on then? Think about why did God have to destroy everybody and only eight people were on the ark to start all, all over again. <clears throat> a lot of the same things that are happening today was happening back then. 
I am going to read a little bit out of Second Peter. We've got a little bit of time. And this is Second uh, Peter uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample or an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Now, Lot and his two daughters, now he had multiple daughters. If you go back and look at the story leading up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you will notice that Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent. He lives in a tent. Lot lives down in the city of uh, Sodom, and he's sitting in the gate of the whole city. And we know that he has a house that he lives in that has a door that could be shut and locked. We know that there's streets in the city. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's the first time that a house is mentioned in the Bible. You can check me on that. And probably the first time a street is mentioned in the Bible. And that's all the way up in, let's see, Genesis 14. Uh, then when you get to 18 and 19, is the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was sitting in his, the door of his tent. Why? Because he was in the bit of shade, but he wanted to see what was going on. Three men walked up. He's sitting there. Maybe it's the heat of the day. He's just kind of protecting himself from the heat of the day. And he looks, and this, all of a sudden, there's three men there. Now, when you see three, take notice. If Abraham had done a study, which he couldn't because he don't have the whole Bible back then, but if he had the whole Bible and he looked through all the places where it says three, he would know that, oh, this is something I need to pay attention to. So three men showed up, which is basically saying this is God's signature on this. This is something that God is about to do. Pay close attention. They're talking. They're getting ready to leave, and the angel of Jehovah, I mean, this is God himself that's, that's speaking to Abraham. The other two angels start to walk away. They just look like men. They, look, they, they prepared food and drink, and they sat there and ate it like a human would do. And the one stayed back, which ended up being God. The other two walking away, and, and God is saying, should I let Abraham in on what we're here for? And he said, you know, I think I should. He's, he, he's pretty important. And God starts to talk to Abraham, and he said, you know, the cry coming out of Sodom, and I need to go down there and check on it and make sure that it's legit. And if it is, mm, it's going to be wiped out. Abraham immediately thinks of Lot. My nephew's there. But, but God, you wouldn't destroy it if there's 50 righteous people there. I mean, that would be, I mean, the judge of the whole world, that wouldn't be right. 
to destroy everybody if there's 50 righteous. And God said, oh, no, I would definitely not. I wouldn't destroy it for 50. And Abraham's like, ooh. <laughs> well, what if there's like 45? I won't destroy it for 45. And he starts bargaining with him, and they, and they, keep, they start jumping to the 10s. It was like, well, how about 30? How about 20? And finally gets all the way down to, well, if there's 10 righteous, you're not going to destroy it, will you? And God said, nope. If I can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy it. Did three people show up in Sodom? Two, the number of division. The angels had showed up to separate the ungodly from if there was any godly there. Separation. Two, two-edged sword. Two-edged sword will divide. And y'all know what happened with the city of Sodom. The men of the city, you know, there was a time in America where if you participated in the abomination of homosexuality, you would hide. You were ashamed of it. You didn't want people to know. Well, we have turned into a country that is, you, you not only have to be tolerant of it, but you have to say it's okay. It's not good enough for you to be, okay, to be tolerant of it and if that, hey, if that's what you want to do, you do it, but the Bible says this and, and I got bad news for you. You have to be accepting of it. It's not good enough just to be tolerant of it. The, the men of the city had all turned to, be, to that so-called lifestyle. To the point that if you were normal and you happened to walk through their city, then they were going to take it out on you. That's where we're headed. We're really close to that in this country. When is the Laodicean church period going to be over? I don't know. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that this is going to happen on this date. I don't know when the church age ends and the true believers are taken out like Enoch and the tribulation starts up. So, so getting back to the Noah thing and the ark, that probably is when, when, when the Enochs of the world are taken out, then other people will be ministered to by the 144,000 that will be raised up out of Israel, the 12,000 from each tribe, that will be raised up, they'll be young Jewish boys, very young, innocent. And they will be like elected, like Paul was elected on the road to Damascus. It wasn't, God just zapped him right there. Jesus was all over him, just blinded him with his light. I think those 144,000 will be instantly raised up for the purpose of spreading the good word of, you're in the tribulation now, and if you take the mark, if you, if, you, if you don't go along with what everybody's telling you, you're going to die. So either lose your head or lose your salvation. There's going to be plenty of people that are going to be saved in the tribulation period, but not saved the way we get saved. It's going to be different. Going back to kingdom of heaven principles and kingdom of God principles. Kingdom of heaven principles will be taken away, but kingdom of God principles will be set back up, and people will have to be like the ten virgins. 
They'll have to be like the five that had oil and not like the five that didn't. That's a whole other sermon. But if you are, if you don't understand the difference and you think that you might be one of the five virgins that don't have enough oil and you're going to be left out, you have no security in your salvation whatsoever. And it's because you're not understanding the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. There is no ten virgins in the kingdom of God. That's kingdom of heaven principle. And I hope that will make some people feel better because there's people who live this life thinking that I can't measure up. And I, I just want to pray, do not look at yourself. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what's done for you. Look to Him. Okay? Believe is the key word in the Gospel of John. Believe. Read the Bible because you've got to know what to believe. You can't just walk around saying, Oh, I believe. I have faith. What do you have faith in? Who do you have faith in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray we would be more like the church of Philadelphia, that we would have brotherly love. Father, we, we would show our love to those who are perishing. Father, I pray that we would stand fast, stand secure in your word, so that we won't be falsely being nice and accepting of people's sinful lifestyles, just allowing them to continue in what they continue in so that they can one day be lost and in hell forever. But Father, that we would lose our liberty, we would lose our lives in standing on Your Word, being bold and courageous to tell people they're going the wrong way, and to introduce them to Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be more like the church of brotherly love that truly cares about others. Father, give us that ability. Give us the courage. Give us the faith that we need. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Pray that we would get it into our minds and into our hearts and that we will be different. We will be holy because you are holy. We will represent you well everywhere we go. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.